Okay, Erev Tov. Good luck, everybody. And we are, this uh, is Hashem, going to be beginning a, uh, learning a short pamphlet written by Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKoyin Cook, Zechron Levracha, first chief rabbi of Israel, Rav Cook, and uh, give a little introduction. Uh, the reason why I want to give this class is for two reasons. Number one, it's very long, Matzi Shabbos. And to be honest with ourselves, as soon as Shabbos is over, a number of us just have to go to uh, social media and see what's happening. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's good. But it's not something that's pleasant. So, uh, and Shabbos, we like to keep the Shabbos as long as we can and to keep our minds uh, filtered in the right direction. So, uh Usually we learn a lot on Shabbos in the summertime, and we don't have that opportunity. And right now it's not even 7 o'clock, so if we can learn till 7.30, 7.45, you still have a lot of the Matzah Shabbos. You'll still go to the internet. You'll still what's going on with Eretz Yisrael. We're human beings. But at least we maybe we'll go in with a little bit of a, our head more straight on, because you need to have guidance in this. And there's very few tzaddikim. If you look in all of Jewish scholarship, you're going all the way back. I mean, you have Sukkim in the Torah that tells you when you go to battle. But you really didn't have, you know, how do you look at it from a halachic and hashkafic perspective? The Rambam was the one who took all the laws of going to war and put them into halachas in his magnum opus of Mishnah Torah. And he made that uh, to, uh, to make it into a halachic format. But not until Rav Kook comes along does he really explain the nature of war. And remember, the, the Svarim that Rav Cook wrote, they, a lot of them were called Orot, or Oirois, depending on which uh, <laughs> way you want to say it. Uh, and Orot means lights, and meaning to, to see the presence of HaGadosh in these things. He wrote many Svarim called Orot. Orot HaTshuva, the lights of Tshuva, for example. This short pamphlet is called Orot HaMilchama, The Lights of War. And the point of it is that we have to understand everything, everything in our lives has to be understood through the viewpoint of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world. The problem is when Matzi Shabbos at Shabbos, you, we try as hard as possible to live in Hashem's reality. As, as much as possible, we try to do that. Soon as Shabbos is over, we go into the other reality and it's very hard to fight it because it seems so real. So this is a very good bridge. Transition. Transition. And that we'll hear how Rav Cook looks at this. And that's the way we should be looking at it. And to appreciate that when you then go to the internet to understand that 99% of it is totally inconsequential and that we have better things to do with our time. And that's the hope. So, what Did I, I say when this was written? I'm going to get to this. Oh, Everything's okay, coming sorry. up. So, Rav Cook's writing in general is very hard to understand. I have a lot of difficulty. A lot of times I don't know what in the world he talked. The, the way he writes, it's just so majestic and poetic, and it's just it's not. It's like uh, it, it reflects the greatness of of who he was, and he was projecting in directions that we just. So it, it takes uh, great people to be able to understand what he's saying and to distill what he's saying. And therefore, 
uh, we, what I'm going to use is uh, there's uh, there's a lot of people from the yeshiva world from Rav Cook, uh, which was Mosada Rav Cook and all these places that they were they taught his they learned his Torah taught his Torah, and therefore although the pamphlet on Oro Samulchama is relatively short, and it's something we should be able to finish over the winter on the Matzi Shabbosos. So, so one of the uh, students of his son, his son was uh, um, was Tzvi Yehuda, Tzvi Yehuda Cook. So he continued the traditions of the, we'll call it uh, religious Zionism, for lack of a better term, we'll call it religious Zionism. And then students of him uh, have continued this. So I'm taking from Rav Uri Shurki. Uh, you could look him up. Uh, he, he's a rabbi with a beard. He's one of the, uh, one of the, you know, one of the uh, religious Zionistic rabbis. The difference between you look at a religious Zionistic rabbi and a Haredi religious rabbi. Haredi religious rabbi has a black suit and a tie, and uh, a, a Mizrahi religious a religious Zionist. Uh, we'll have a sweater and a kippah struga, but a beard the same, and certainly great love of Hashem and Eretz Yisrael the same way. Uh, doesn't minimize one rabbi from another, but they have different uh, externals, we'll say. So, Rabbi, this is the Coles notes of a very So, no, so I'm going to continue. So, what he is going to do is what we're going to, we're going to learn the original text and then with his uh, notes to it, Rav Shurki's notes. But before we even do that, we're going to look at an introduction that Rav Shurki wrote. So, now he wrote it in Hebrew, and I had the wonderful task of trying to translate it into English. But don't give me that much credit. What you could do is, you could take a section of the Hebrew, put it into Google Translate. But Google Translate does not really understand uh, um, uh, Jewish... Uh, halachic Hebrew, so some of the translations are crazy, so I have to go it over and fix it up. There's also a lot of modern Hebrew, which I'm not an expert in modern Hebrew, but so the modern Hebrew gets translated really well, but then, you know, it's like, uh, what do you call that, artificial intelligence, right. then the translation, that's nuts, that's not what he meant, you know, for example, when he'll put in the Hebrew a dalid with a little marker to mean Hashem, so the English puts in four. <laughs> so, so it took a bit of time to put this together and what would like to, my goal for tonight is to go to the Hakdama, the introduction and the first chapter I would like to but if you have questions be by all means so this introduction is not from Rav Cook it's from Rav Shorky and I, I just would like to read the Hebrew and I'll translate the English and uh, this way we I can't, if I make it bigger, I lose either the Hebrew or the English. I don't know, but Leslie, you're pretty close there. I think we, this is a good way you should bring an eye doctor here. Because <laughs> if you cannot see that, you need to have better, need to have better glasses. I, I could see it pretty good. Uh, if if, if necessary, I could maybe print out copies. Um, what I might do is, uh, if you want, I could email you this, and then you could print it out for your own. That's possible. Okay. So this is now the introduction of Rav Shurki. So it's not to add, what he's going to give you is a little gist of what this is about. That war is a very painful subject. 
Al Hogetos Behemsha This has been a subject that has been studied mainly by non Jews throughout history. That's what he's saying. Rabbi Beikar Goyim, he's asking Geshelal Etzam Avuchama. Non Jews have been mainly not, uh, many, mostly non Jews, have engaged themselves in this very essential question, its essence, umashmos, what it really means, etc. People have been discussing wars throughout times. Okay? Yehudi Maoski Vinyani Milchama Zet Nadir. Among many of the great men of Israel, Okay, there are, there are lots of comments. Okay, although there's a lot of comments uh, here and there about the essence of the wars, but there were very few people and great men who devoted and concentrated into this subject. Again, here and there, but nobody's really concentrated. Oros HaMulchama, this text, Oros HaMulchama, the lights of war. Zesif Roshala Rav Kook, Binyanin Mulchama. This is Rav Kook's work regarding war. Oros, when he uses the word Oros, or Orot, Bisfato Shel HaRav Kook, in his language, Perusho, Tvisut, have a note or perceptions. When he says orot, it's like divine perceptions of what's happening. Klomar, Harav Kuk Malamido Sano Havanos Khatashos Binogel in Yonimilchama. Rav Kuk teaches us new understandings regarding the topic of war. Sefer Zed Nichtav Berubo most, if not all, of this work was written during the First World War. Now, here's the story behind the war. So, you know, really for this, I could probably write, read the English only because it's not really Rav Cook's words. Right. So, okay, in those war days before the war began, Rav Cook went abroad because he wanted to participate in the Second World Conference of Agudas Yisrael, to which he was invited. Where was so, he living? He was in Israel. He was already in Israel. Okay. Yeah, really, it wouldn't be a bad idea if they gave a whole history class on Rav Cook. Yeah, maybe that would have been not a bad idea, but it's not going to be this time, this time around. Anyway, uh, in, he was he made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael in the early 1900s, and he was a very prominent rabbi already in Eretz Yisrael. Now, right away, so he was invited to be in the second World Agudas Yisrael Conference, which was in Europe. Now, he really did not want to go because he didn't want to leave Eretz Yisrael. Now, just to understand, a good Yisrael was, is, was very religious. Yeah. This was made up of the great Rosh Yeshivas, like the Chafetz Chaim, people like that, Rebbe Hanan Wasserman. It was made up of great Hasidic Rebbes, Ger Rebbe, different Rebbes, they were, all, they were the world leaders in Europe so at yeshivish that time. Yeshivish and Hasidish. That was the big Chiddush of a good Yisrael to put them together. Uh-huh. Now, Rav Kook had originally learned in uh, in Europe, like everybody else, yeah. but then he made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. Now, the fact that he would be invited to attend a world, a good Yisrael conference, means that they respected him as a very religious Jew. Right. Okay? That's very important uh, because history 
has, so to speak, been very uh, bifurcated for certain people in life. And Rav Cook is one of them. Rav, uh, Rav Yashaber Salavechik is another. There's certain people who are great people and very much misunderstood. And, uh, and since they had very different approaches than the mainstream, people get afraid of that. Like the Rambam uh, was looked at as a maverick, so to speak, and had a lot of challenges. Rav Kook was one of them. Now, the true, true Gedolim all respected Rav Kook. The true Gedolim at that time, Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, all, they truly respected him. And he was invited to an Agudas Yisrael conference, so he must have been respected. Now, not to say that there weren't uh, quote-unquote modern type of rabbis existed as well. And people, uh, over time, mistook him for that. I'm just going to leave it at that. And if you look in the quote-unquote yeshivish world, they'll never quote Rav Kook, which I really feel is a very sad thing. Because... A lot of uh, Rev. Cook ventured, as they say, as a rabbi, he boldly went where other rabbis were afraid to go. And uh, and but uh, he was very much involved in Kiruv. That was to improve the quality of life of Eretz Yisrael. If you ask, there's a fault. There's one fault Rev. Cook had. He didn't know how underhanded. And uh, trying to find the manipulative, devious. The devious were the secular Israelis. He's like Yitzchak Avinu vis-a-vis Esav. No one is going to say that Yitzchak wasn't the ultimate tzaddik, but Esav was so criminal he could even, to a certain point, deceive his father. Doesn't take away from Yitzchak's greatness. Rav Cook could not believe that Jews could be so evil. And they used him as their chazer fiesel. They used him to make them look kosher. And uh, a couple times he really was taken to the cleaners and was very upset about it. And then people would say, see, even Rabbi Cook says that we're kosher. So this is a problem. That's why, that's when the Haredi world got very nervous and had to want to distance. walk back from him. And, and what's unfortunate is his great Torah gets left behind as well. And then what happens is, then the more secular people then start quoting or misquoting Rav Kook and taking one line who talks about loving Eretz Yisrael and they say that, okay, so even Rabbi Kook says loving your soul is important, but they forget it has to be with Torah and everything else. So that's why it's you're not going to hear such a class in any yeshiva. It's just not. And it's unfortunate because he has a lot to offer. And this is the same thing happened with Rabbi Shabir Salavechik. Same thing. So anyway, back to our main thing. So he was a big rabbi, and at that time he was, and he, but they said, listen, we need you to come. So he comes, and then he goes, and uh, what happens is, while he's there, the First World War breaks out. Hmm. And therefore, they had to cancel the Agudas Yisrael meeting. And, uh, but he was already abroad. He was studying Torah in Germany. And uh, what happened is the war broke out. And Rav Kook was a Russian subject. He was from Russia originally before he made Aliyah. So in Germany, they put him in prison. 
And then after a while, he's transferred to Switzerland, where he and his son, they stayed for a year and a half. And they were sort of in hiding. And they studied together, him and his son, for a year and a half, just learning Torah. After that year and a half, the Jews of England knew, heard that Rav Cook was in Switzerland. They asked me, the rabbi, the religious community in London. Rabbi Cook agreed under one condition. As soon as the war was over, he would return. And he sat there in England until the end of the war. war. Now, it's understood. He wrote the Sefer, the notes, Oros, Hamilchama, during this period of time. This is now you have to remember. Well, you can't remember, but the First World War between 1914 and 1918. There's a reason why it was called the World War. You were, always was wars, but you'd have England with France be yeah. war. You know the Greeks with the whatever. Uh, we have war. It was the first time you had mamish the entire Europe. Yeah. spreading over into Asia, was involved in war, and everybody was at war. The war to end and, all wars. And, yeah. this, and, and, and that's why they called it the big one. Yeah. And yeah. about 50 million people died yeah. in that war. Yeah. That was an incredible, and that was just in Europe. We're not talking about Pacific or anything else like that. And it was like such an unusual event that the whole world would be in war. So you need a Torah mind to analyze this, okay? So Rav Cook, this is when the Sefer was written. Now, remember another thing. Uh, when there was a discussion, would there ever be a Jewish state? So I don't remember who the discussion was with, but this was like in the early 1900s. I said there can never be a Jewish state. Why? The only way there could be a Jewish state is if three major powers would have to fall. Tsarist Russia, because they hated Torah. Okay. The, what do you call it? The Ottoman Turks, who were in charge of Israel, would have to fall. And the Austria-Hungary Empire would have to fall. And they are not going to fall. Everybody said they are not falling. So there's going to be no Israel. Okay, this was in the early, very early 1900s, yeah. right? Okay, and the truth is that was absolutely a correct analysis based on what was on the ground. All of a sudden, World War I is happening, and what happened? Tsarist Russia collapsed, the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and England took over Israel, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed. This is all going on. So, you know, what are people thinking about this? Well, there's all kinds of political takes on this. Okay, so Rav Cook is thinking, where does this all fit into Judaism? Okay, now, during the war, while the British forces were approaching the gates of Israel, there is discussion about the Balfour Declaration. And there are Jews from Germany who strongly opposed the discussion because they claimed that Judaism is not national, but a religion. <laughs> and this was the big machlokes now. Should there be a Jewish state? Because Yiddishkeit is a religion. All right? It's not a national thing, so to speak. 
So there was a big machlokes within the Jewish world, the Orthodox world, we'll call it, should this happen or not. And now the British, who now are in charge, and there were significant Jews in high places there. <coughs> so they wanted, so these Jews who were against it, they wanted to come and speak before the committees of the British Parliament. But the British did not let them come because they were enemies. Why? Because Germany was at war in England. Okay? So you're Jews, but you're in Germany. So you're right. We don't want to hear you. But Rav Cook could speak because he was a Russian subject and Russia was an ally of the British. And thus Rav Cook became part of the decisive struggle to receive the Balfour Declaration. He was very instrumental in the that final declaration that the, was look, the queen looks favorably, the king looks favorably yeah, exactly, yes, yes. upon there being a Jewish state. So German Jews were shut out, basically. Well, yeah, because they were On the, the enemy. Now, during the war, Rav Cook would would hang out in Hyde Park. I guess you know where that is, Paul. Speaker's Corner, where they used to freedom okay. of speech. They stood up there. Okay, and, and there he one. came up with higher thoughts about higher worlds. And there he wrote a safer called Rish Milin. Okay, that's not Nogeas. And in those days, the book Lights of War was written. Now, here is just a synopsis of what he, what comes out of the book. But obviously, you know, it's, it's really what he called when you give away the good part. There's a thing they call it now. Spoilers. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Rav Cook understands that through this war with Israel, he will return to the political stage. Okay, meaning to say, Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, will return to the political stage. This is what the war was about. So he explains, if you do the math to see what the benefit was from the First World War, what is achieved after it was, that wasn't beforehand? You see, the total balance is negative. Almost 60 million dead in Europe, a global catastrophe and all. Even world peace was not achieved by this war. All the agreements that were signed in the end were not the same 20 years later in the Second World War. Conclusion, nothing positive came out of this war except for the British mandate on the land of Israel and the Balfour Declaration and the exception for the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Okay, that was the two things that happened, okay, but the Balfour Declaration came out. And here is such a sharp point. And again, if I would ask you, what was the main, what's the main takeaway from World War I, what would you think? What would you? Well, yeah, it led to World War II. But you got to be someone like Rev. Cook to come up with the next line over here. I never thought of this. And from this, Rev. Cook concludes, the First World War is actually the certificate of the failure of Christianity. After all, Christianity spoke for many years about a world of love. And Christian Europe is the one that did the greatest bloodshed in the First World War which proves the failure of Christianity. But he puts on the back of it, but, the, but they were Christians, they were secularists that were, fight, that were fighting. Uh, but it was still the, the Christian, Christian world. It was all influenced by the Christian There were no Muslims in Europe at that time. That's for sure. 
But the Inquisition killed as well. And so what? The Inquisition also killed. 500 years earlier, the Christians. Okay, fine, fine. But this, when it comes to a world war, we never had a world war before. They could say, yes, the Christians killed people in the name of God and this and all these things. But this is the, uh, after, what, uh, 1,700 years of Christianity in Europe, you know what its accomplishment was? They all were killing each other. He gives an example. He gives a wonderful marshal. No, but this was of unparalleled. You have one com country with another country. There's always fighting going on. But here it was like the whole world was at war. And really, no one really still understands what it really was about and what it was for. So he gives a marshal to this. Let's have an excellent teacher. Oh, this, this is beautiful. Who taught the same class continuously for years. At the graduation party, there was a knife fight between the class members. Asking the teacher, is this your education? The teacher says, I only said good things. I taught him reading, writing, arithmetic, and everything. The conclusion is that there's a problem with this education. How come he said only good things, but the students do bad things? Apparently, there's a problem with the education. The parable, if Christian Europe, that constantly talked about kindness and mercy, reached a state of world war, that is the certificate of failure of that culture. That is Christianity has failed. Okay, so that is the little introduction to this safer written by Rav Shurk. He, he could have gotten got killed for yeah. that. Christians right. would never accept that idea. Yeah. Well, he's writing it in Hebrew. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so they never read it. <laughs> and it, he doesn't put it in the first couple chapters. <laughs> I have to say that Islam teaches world peace too. Yeah. Okay, well, we're, we're getting there. Islam's gonna get us. And what, what's so beautiful about this, once we finish the book, we can now project. Remember, he died in 1935, of course. Okay, but he had a tremendous amount of students, and the students are picking up where he left off. So this is where, where this comes. So now we're going to do chapter one. And now this well, now i got to do the Hebrew and English, because these are the exact words of Rav Cook. So now the way I... Uh, worked it out is the bold is Rav Cook's words in the Hebrew and in the English and the non-bold is this Rav Shirky explaining those words. Um, the explanation is needed for a few words. Yeah, yes, and well, you're going to no, see the so chapter three is that long. Wow. Whoa. I don't know if we're going to finish this That's today. Chapter one. Chapter, chapter one. I don't know if we're going to finish it today. We'll go, this far. We'll go till about 7.30. That's you know yeah, that's an hour. My wife's picking me up. So is I'm good. So here is the um, first main point of chapter one, which is called the pruning of the world. Like you prune a tree, you prune the world. He says, and this is right away. When there's a great war in the world, misorer koach mashiach, the power of mashiach awakens. Whoa, so what does that mean? What is the phrase, koach mashiach? He means, the idea is, the meaning is that the world can be changed for the better. For us, this idea is centered on a specific personality from the house of David who will rule over us, but the Mashiach is only the crowning glory of the general positive process 
that will pass over the world. War is meant to arouse Mashiach. That's already a big yesod to understand. So we have to be looking. Somehow Mashiach is being aroused. Not that the Mashiach is coming, but it's got to get aroused. Now, what? what? Rav Cook. What's his source? What's his source? Okay, good luck. The whole to- everything he knows. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. You have to understand what's Mashiach. Okay, there's an Israeli writer who said that he appreciated Rav Cook until he read this sentence. When there is a great war in the world, the power of the Messiah arises. And really a question is asked about Rav Cook. How can it be that the rabbi sees something positive in the war? The answer to the question is that it's necessary to understand what the rabbi meant. The power of the Mashiach arises in all kinds of ways, and one of them is wars. In other words, Mashiach comes in many ways. This is one of the ways. At a very early stage, humans decided that history should go through wars. God didn't decide that the world should go through wars. When we started in a couple of weeks on Lech Lecha, there came four kings and five kings. They decided to decide things with a war. So mankind has chosen how to have history. God did not tell them to have wars. But if that's the way the world runs itself, God has to fit into the program. Therefore, God has no choice but to use the data that exists in the world and from these data, the wars, to awaken the power of Mashiach. One should pay attention to Rav Cook's distinction between ordinary war and great war. Because he said, Melchama Gedola, Upa, shouldn't have done that. Melchama Gedola, the great war. Okay? Uh, an ordinary war is just wickedness. And a great war, in contrast, at least that war was, is a sign that the world order is changing. The world before the war is not the world after the war. The great war causes all kinds of thoughts about changes. Okay, and that's what you need for Mashiach. You need people to change their minds about this. Now what Rav Cook is going to do, he's going to quote a Pasuk from Shir Hashiri. Okay, and in the second chapter, it says in Shir Hashiri, Ace Hazamir Higia. The time of the nightingale has come. It's talking about the, the, the seasons, the nightingale sings. So he's quoting Shir Hashiri. The puzzle goes on. Ace Hazamir Higia, the time of the nightingale has come. The call Hator Nishma And the call of the turtle dove is heard in our country. Okay, that's what the Pesach says. So how does Rav Kook, and how does really the Chazal, the rabbis understand it? Chazal Dorshim, as a Zamir, the rabbis understand Nightingale, the word Hazamir is from the word Lizmor, to prune, to prune a tree. Zmora is pruning, one of the Malachas, Lizmor. Okay, it could also be Zamir to sing, same root. Oh, that's where we okay. Anyway, so now it means it's the time for pruning. And how does Rav Cook understand? Zamir Aritzim, prune the tyrants. Harishayim Nichachari Mina Olam. 
the wicked people are being exterminated from the world. And the world is invigorated. This is Rav Cook's words. In other words, when war comes, it's time to cut down the wicked people. Okay? Why? So that things should be better. And that what? And the Pasuk ends. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our country. That's when parts of evil in the world are cut off, redemption begins to progress. That's how we, Chazal, understand the Pasuk. It's Chazal. He's quoting it. So, All right. like so when you're sitting... The war or after the war? In the middle of the war. In the middle of the war. He's in the middle of the war. Well, I can't be exactly specific when beginning and start date, but he obviously, you know, he had a lot of, quote-unquote, relatively free time. Instead of being a busy rabbi in Israel, he was confined, so he had a lot of time to think. And he's saying, this is a time, war means to destroy wicked people. Okay, now Rav Shirky starts off with his, oh, so now it's going to come a question. Now, what's the obvious question that a person would ask, and that this can now whatever he's saying about this that war, you'll see, same thing can be said about World War Two. Mm -hmm. Same thing can be said about Six Day War, war okay. Yom Kippur War, this war. Okay, so now so 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 the so now what is the instant question? Oh, yes, a lot of bad people died. The czar got knocked out. Okay, that's good. Yeah, but a lot of good people died. So you're telling me it's a time to get rid of the evil. So Rav Cook understands that, and that's what the next word is. Hayechidim, the individuals, and now he's going to talk about the individuals who get killed. So, But there's a lot of innocent people who die in a war. So how do you explain this? He's going to call individuals. Individuals, he refers to, are not necessarily and only exclusively tzaddikim, but righteous private individuals. Okay? Your regular nice Jew, he davens three times a day, he learns Torah, he gives tzedakah. Okay, he does some averis here and there, but generally speaking, he's a pretty good person. The proof of this is when Avram wanted to save the city of Stone, when he said, is there 50 righteous people, he certainly did not mean tzaddikim like Avram. He meant 50, these people who don't steal and don't kill. Yeah. So when he talks about Yechidim, Rav Cook is referring to in the middle, nice, regular Jews. Okay. Which we'd have a question, why did they die? Why were righteous Jews gassed and all? Now, he had no, I, I don't know if he had no idea, maybe prophetically, but the Holocaust didn't happen yet. And not nearly as many Jews died in World War I, although significant did, but it was, it was like a collateral damage of war. People were just killing each other, and righteous people died in, in that war. So why are right, if you're telling me it's a time to clean out the evil, so what's going on with the good people? So that becomes a difficult question to answer. So he heads it off right away. He says, Hanisafim below Mishpat, who are who perish without justice. What does he mean, justice? Justice that we understand. Shibatoha Mapecha shall shetev al Without 
within this revolution of this flow of war, in other words, this is collateral damage. Esther, if you find any better English words used, you can tell me and I'll correct it because your Hebrew is much better than mine. He says, he says, yesh ba, and he says, ba'ofen yachasi. In a relative way, there's a concept here of mimidas misas tzadikim hamechaperes. The Talmud says there's an attribute of the death of the righteous brings an atonement. And that's how he deals with that. And that's, oh, see, there's no more black over here. That was what Rav Kook is saying. He's going to say one more clause in a minute. But obviously we have this question, what do you mean that the death of the righteous brings an atonement? It seems very pagan. That Jesus died for Christian. your sins. Yeah. Christian. 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 Yeah, what? I always wonder when you say that the atonement is to the, to the person ah. who so there's the question. So look what look what Rav Shirky explains. He says there's an idea of arevus. So you uh, translators say guarantee, but it's yeah. deeper than that. Arevus means we're all interconnected. So what is what does that mean? What does that mean? He says righteous people love everyone. Tzadikim ohavim es kulam. And as soon as someone loves someone else, then they become united. When somebody, you love everybody, everyone feels connected. And when it hurts the next, uh, th that is, the righteous is united in love for the other. And when it hurts the next, the righteous also hurts. For example, a mother loves her child, and when the child hurts, the mother hurts too. It can also be the other way around. The love a mother has for her son causes him to suffer, right? If you love, there's love, there's mutual pain. It follows from this. When the righteous who love everyone die, they do not die as it were, but others died through them because they are united with them. Make sense? In other words, the tzaddik dies, I feel the death. I'm suffering. That is when the righteous person dies, something dies in the rest of the world. So therefore, the idea that death of the righteous people makes atonement is a very different thing from the way of atonement in Christianity. For them, the one who atones for man is God. That he is superior to man, but that creates a problem. How can it be that they suffered atonement for the person since there's no connection between him and the person? In other words, how, how, do, the, how do you get atonement? When Jesus dies, how does that give you any atonement? Where's the atonement coming from? But that's not so with us. Man makes amends for man. There's no, there's a connection between people, a connection of identity. Christianity continues ancient pagan ideas. The measure of justice must be fulfilled. <coughs> In other words, what he's saying is, as we'll see a moment later, that Tzaddik who dies, we feel that pain. And we feel that something has to be made up from that. The tzaddik that we loved is no longer with us. The tzaddik represented something. And therefore, we have to make up what is being missed. Because we loved him and we feel that loss. And we have to make up that loss. And when we make up that loss, that brings the atonement for Claudius. Because we are the ones. It spurs us on to do tshuva. And more than that, it's like part of us died. So then we don't have to. And, and we don't have to. In other words, there's what you call yesurim, suffering. Suffering brings atonement. 
So just as example, if a person is sick, and he realizes it's a sickness from Hashem, and Hashem is talking to him, and he's supposed to do tshuva, the sickness can bring him to Yesurim mamarkim. Yesurim cleanse. So guess what? If you love this tzaddik, and that tzaddik loves you, and you, and he dies, so part of you dies. And you're, you are suffering, and you realize that something has to be improved over here. That's the idea. But now comes to an interesting. So you understand that idea. But there's still another question. But if the tzaddik does not want to die, then how could it be that he dies anyway? <laughs> In other words, he doesn't want to die. Very nice. You want to bring kapara. But the tzaddik doesn't want to die. It says two gavaltika pshatim here. It says the tzaddik does not want to die, but the tzaddik is connected. He says it, it doesn't matter. He gives an example. Let's say you have a diseased organ, but the, the, let's say, I'll make it clear. Let's say there's cancer. The cancer was in your arm, okay? But then it spread to the heart. Now, the heart says, I don't want my heart to stop beating, so I'm sorry you were connected to the body, and the cancer spread to the heart. The fact that you're connected to the body, even if the cancer didn't come from the heart, but the cancer's in the heart. The heart can't say, I didn't do anything. Why should I why should I be why should I get the metastasized uh cancer? That's I wasn't with cancer. Listen, you're in the same body that happens. Because you are a heart, you must hurt. Thus the righteous. The suffering of the righteous is a natural consequence of being righteous. Because the tzaddik is a non-private personality. He identifies with the suffering of others. And this very identification makes him suffer himself. A mother cannot say, why do I have to suffer my baby's suffering? Because being a mother connects her to the baby and the suffering. Right? So therefore, you're the tzaddik, you're connected. So first of all, as a tzaddik, the tzaddikim would suffer even if nothing happened to them. They would mamish feel the pain. But now it goes further. But the question if the mother had educated the child properly, she would not have suffered because the child would not have suffered because the child would have done things better. Also, if the tzaddik had educated the generation, he wouldn't have had to correct it at all. The answer is the question. The answer is in the question. There really is a responsibility of the tzaddik for the generation. Therefore, there's a degree of involvement of the tzaddik in the wickedness of the generation. In other words, that Sadik is in charge. And if he's in charge, he bears a certain degree of responsibility. Okay, so hold on. So therefore, people who are of higher level should make a difference. So there's multiple things that are being said over here. On the one hand, you have just the simple idea. He's a Sadik, he brings atonement, he's part of the body. And part of the body has been hurt, and that brings atonement for everybody. That's one thing. Number two, people should be doing tshuva for that. That's another thing. Number three, a tzaddik himself is like the heart of the generation. I know what you're going to ask, I think. And uh, therefore, he may not have done such a good job. So Gail's going to ask, but what about you? You're not the big tzaddik. You're the regular guy. It's not up to me. You're married long enough. You know how we each think each other. Okay. So first of all, who's to say you couldn't have done a little thing? 
right? Anybody can invite the next door neighbor. You mean the expectations? We're not expecting you to change the educational system of the Jewish people, but you could have maybe worked on a neighbor. And in that area, we all have a certain degree of responsibility. But now he takes it to another level, next part of the uh, of Rav Cook, and now he takes another part. So there's one aspect is the righteous die for the sins of the generation. That's an accepted Jewish, it's not his idea, that's a chazal. And we've, expect, we've explained the fairness of it. But there's still one question, but wait a minute, the tzaddik's dead. We're in this world to be able to do all the mitzvahs we can. Now, it's fascinating. You think of some of the greatest tzaddikim. Isn't it interesting? The greatest Kabbalists died at very early ages. The Arizal, Mamish, all of Kabbalah is because of him, died just under 40. Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato died just under 40. You have great people dying at such ages. How do you understand this? So now comes a very mystical part over here, and it's very worthwhile. See, this is this is where it gets hard. So what happens to these? We're talking about these individuals now. So he said, number one, they die. It's it's a it's a kapara for the generation. But then they say, he says, this is the real hard Hebrew now. Olim heim lamala. They ascend above bishoreshachaim in the essence of life. Fa'atzmus chayehem and their essence of their lives may be erech kloli litova brings an overall value of goodness ulebrach and blessing al klal binyan olam and the overall structure of building the world bechol erchav umuvanov in all its values and all its meanings. Well, the rabbi here relies on an idea that originates in Torah secrets. What? No, no. So, hold on, hold on. But don't we also see just with the Avodas, you know, with with, with uh, the death of Sarah, that the Pitim, that there there was uh, called a delay of judgment against them because they attended her funeral. We see this. When, with, with, oh, that's dealing with them. Sure. But that, but that's not what he's saying here. He, he's saying something very. Uh, here's a class example. I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> like, if you look at it like that, you know, they're only Lamala. They're going up to the in the source of life. Ah, oh, very good. So now we get this footnote over here. Don't we say once? And he says like this. Hold on. Okay. So first of all. So this Rav over here, I, I put it in footnotes to make it easier. So I'm just going to, Esther will be able to read along with me and maybe a couple others, but I'm going to just tell you outside what he's saying. So uh, first he said individuals can get killed, right, without apparent justice. That's what he said. Remember he said that line? It looks like that Hashem doesn't care about the individuals. It, from what the words, remember, what is Rav Kook write? That's the point. Rav Kook writes certain words. You just read what he says. He says, what's going on? He says, Yechidim, individuals, get get killed without justice. <laughs> what do you mean? Rav Kook would write, but he says, no, this idea of tzaddikim are a kapara, and then their souls ascend, whatever that means. So you can make a mistake and think there's no justice. And that can really uh, give a, a bad feeling. It's like, what does it mean? God just kills, doesn't care. And he says, for sure, Hashem cares about every individual. 
<laughs> and then the Shrev Shirky says so good, governments are the ones who don't care about individuals. <laughs> governments do not care about individuals. United States went into World War I. They had no business going into World War I. A lot of the things they say about why they went to World War are not true because they sank the Lusitania. That's not true. They didn't go to war right after that. They all went in for one thing. They had friends in big business and war is profitable. Right. They had no need to go into Europe. It was its own thing. No need to go at all. But there were a lot of people in America who wanted to make a lot of money. Henry so Ford. What? Henry, Henry Ford, Ford and Ford others. And therefore, thousands and thousands of Canadians, Americans, died for no reason at all because governments do not care about individuals. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he does. So what can God do when there's a big war? What can he do when he sees that individuals are being killed? He takes the individual and that's what he says. He brings them above. What does that mean? If somebody dies in war and it wasn't his fault, it's someone else's fault, who others? It wasn't coming to him. But what Hashem says is the following. Hashem says, what should this tzaddik have been able to do in his life had he lived? There's a concept in the Torah that says, if you wanted to do a mitzvah and were forced that you couldn't do it, Hashem gives you credit as if you did it anyway. So that applies to every mitzvah. What happens if you're a, a young budding tzaddik and a bomb explodes and kills you at the age of 25? So that is what the Rav Kook is saying. The Yachi, who gets killed below Mishpat, apparently. But what happens is like this. Tzaddik goes up to heaven. And Hashem says, you know, based on who you are and what you were going to be, by the time you would have hit 70, you would have had this much greatness within yourself and it would have helped the Jewish people. And God has to follow the rules. 25, you had this much greatness, which was good, and you helped the world. Had you lived, you would have had this much greatness and that would have helped the world. Guess what? You got it. All those 45 years of greatness, God considers it as if it's done. You're rewarded for it. The world benefits from it. And more than that, if you would have done it, you would have only done it as good as you could do it. But I'm doing it for you. It's even going to be better than what you could have done. In the 45 years, so the benefits accrue to you better and to the world better. <laughs> now, he's got to understand, you got to digest that. And this is all pure logic based on the Gemara that says if you planned on doing an, a, a mitzvah and you couldn't do it, you got credit for it. Now, let's understand if the tzaddik, he's a tzaddik, not even a tzaddik, any one of us. Okay, look at us in the room over here. All of us pretty good Jews, right? Holy Jews. And, you know, if you're going to wake up, let's say, if you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, okay, what are we going to be doing tomorrow morning? Well, if you're one of the guys, I'm around, 
You're going to get up. You're going to wash your hands. You're going to make alnatilis yadayim. You're going to make a brachantalis and tzitzis and tefillin. And you're going to daven and you're going to say tehillim. You're going to go to Rabbi Goldwasser's class for an hour. And you're going to go home. You're going to eat breakfast, make a bracha on the food. You're going to help in the house, make your wife happy. Chesed. You know, and you're going to, et cetera, et cetera. Then you're going to daven mincha and marav and this and that. So like, how many mitzvahs on the mitzvah meter would you have done? I don't know, 85. Okay. Now, and now that's just one day. And if, it, if one of the women, well, she's going to get up, whatever, uh, take care of the kids, uh, take care of the house, make the house clean, um, say to Hillim, take uh, their elderly mother somewhere, do uh, go to chesed, visit the sick, etc. And it also gets like an 85 for the day. Okay. So now, Nebuch, what happens, the war comes, boom, a bomb hits the house and they get killed. So Hashem says, the kind of Jew that you were, you would have got 85s for a lot of days. You got 85s in another 50 years. <clears throat> so those 85s are here, are here. And they'll be scattered over when we'll need them. But you know what? Those 85s will be better 85s because I'm going to do it for you. No matter how good you could do it, God can do it better. And you'll get rewarded for all of this. You have to digest this to understand this because this is where the it's not fair doesn't apply. So, so Rabbi, wait, just wait. <laughs> so let's say, I mean, each of us would like to live to a ripe old age, you know, into your 90s or whatever. You'd like to have it. Why? Why? What do you mean I want to do mitzvahs? Every day is mitzvahs. The more mitzvahs get closer to Hashem and this and that. Is that the real reason why I live all day? Yes. So then what if I, what if I can make you a deal? You can get it. You're going to get 92 years of mitzvahs, but you're going to be taken out in this Muslim uprising early. Now, from a human perspective, it's a tragedy. But from a Jewish philosophical, it's fair, and not only fair, the guy was relieved from having to go through that. And he got... It done because you know there's no guarantee if you make it till 90 that you might not regret being a Jew there are certain Jews that certain things happen and then they regret or they downgrade so doesn't God it's like caring about every single person while Netanyahu the only thing he can do when a soldier dies not because he necessarily cares about the soldier he cares about staying in power. You gotta understand that. He cares about staying in power. To stay in power, you gotta go through the motions and visit everybody who dies and at least pretend to feel bad for the family. Maybe he does. Maybe, I don't know. But that's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because he, he gotta make everyone feel that the individual is cared for. Here's the biggest proof. I don't know how it is in Israel, but in America, the veterans, so are treated like dirt. Maybe in Canada too, I do yes, not know. Yes, yes. Like dirt. I don't know about it, so I just don't know. I don't know, I'm not gonna comment. But generally speaking, you're treated like dirt, why? Because you can't help us anymore, loser. Your legs are blown off. All you now are is a liability to the country. And, and therefore many soldiers 
when they when they're on the field and their legs are blown off, they'll tell Bill, "Don't even save me. Don't even say it's better for me to die." That's when a government is there. Hakadosh Baruch there's no such thing as as you got blown up for something and you're not getting anything. <clears throat> so on the one hand, we have to understand it's a tragedy because human life is always very valuable. And there's a family that is human and is supposed to live like humans and to hurt and be in pain. But yet the person himself has got a one-way <laughs> ticket, not just to Ganeidin. It's a one-way ticket to finish up the flight of your life and it's a guaranteed successful finish. Mission accomplished. But not mission accomplished for 25 <coughs> years. Mission accomplished for 70, 80 years. So what did the person lose? And at the end of all that, you end up going to Olam Haba anyway, and that's the final destination anyway. Right? So therefore, Hashem is not leaving anyone from that. So that's how, how you see how he balances this. He balances the one hand, war is to get rid of the evil. That has to happen. And the righteous who die, that is part of righteous atone part of that and part of it is they're just gonna go right and get everything taken care of it's like what do you call it when you retire you get a pension it's a pension forever you got a pension forever now that takes to be tacham emuna but don't ask a question on the philosophy and the fairness that's one yeah Well, you could say it's Hashkacha Pratis as well, but he's not going there for whatever reason. It wasn't, is, didn't God mean for him to die? Well, yes, but even if he meant for him to die, so it's still not fair, right? The answer is it is because, but in the eyes of the, Hashem does it in a way, it looks like an accident. It looks like, oh, his bad mazel. But no, Hashem said, for whatever reason, it's time for him to go. But that is not, but Rav Cook is smart. That's not a satisfying answer. If I tell you, God only gave him 25 years, what do you want? So you say, that's nice. I don't like the fact that God gave him 25 years. How come I got 25? Now, that's a correct answer. And you have to go back to Gilgals and all kinds of things. You know, in a previous gener- lifetime, he was terrible and this and that, and he killed other people, and now the Kavadah. Fine, we could go there, but <coughs> but why do you have to go there? You could say it much more beautifully. Rev. Cook is always so positive about everything. So he says, well, besides, the Misa brings Kapara. We don't have to go, uh, and you were probably, you know, there was a, a story I heard, I heard Rev. Weinberger <coughs> told over a story that someone from Israel told him that was in these villages that were destroyed. And a neighbor who saw what happened called Rabbi Weinberger and he t- said the story over. He said it, I'm not saying it, I'm just repeating it, so don't shoot me. <laughs> so when they see the Arabs are killing, and they're seeing they're killing a father, the neighbor knew that this father was a child molester. Mm-hmm. And destroyed some children, and kind of was understanding that there sort of is justice in this world, 
And then the neighbor said, and we were hoping that he would, now that he's not alive, he'll pray as an advocate, as a melutiocher for his family now. So what, 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 what was he saying? He was saying, you know what? There's a reason why everybody died. Now it's not everybody, but that fellow, if you're a child molester, like that's really bad. And that always goes under the radar, mostly goes <clears throat> under the radar. How does anybody know? Shem knows. And now you'll be killed in such a way. And that is what? Tikkun. There's justice. Now we can't use this. Oh, well then every yeah. but I'm, but that's an example where in this case you can't have any complaints. But Rav Cook isn't going there where that 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 where it doesn't. He said, We're pruning the evil. Aye, but there's nice people who are dying. Right? Because he what about aren't there wicked Jews? Rev Cook never goes there. He never goes there. He just doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to whatever. But he said, okay, there are good Jews who die, all right? Which makes the question even stronger. So he's saying the good Jew who dies gets an upgrade. That's really what's happening. So he's getting the best of it, and it's helping the Jews. You have everything we do helps others. And now this explains another idea over here. That's why when you look at the Arizal, who dies, Lutzado dies, it's not that they died only, but all that they would have contributed to the world. Rabbi Nachman died under 40. Talking some great guns, dying very young. 40 years old. Now, the question is, I understand, where's Breslau or Hasidus? That it's, whoa, <clears throat> they really doesn't have a leader, so to speak. They don't have a Rebbe. You know, there's an expression in Yiddish called a Teiter Hasidim. I mean, you're a chassid over a dead Rebbe. And in Europe, you know, some Rebbes had children to take over. Others didn't. So they called them toiter chassidim. They're chassidim of a dead person. Some would suggest Lubavitch is that. But what is their answer? And it's a reasonable answer. They're saying, you don't understand. When the person now is no longer alive, they can do more. Now that's nice to say when a Rebbe dies at 80 and 90. When a Rebbe dies young, what do you say? You're saying they die, but everything they were still to produce will be produced in one way or another. All the beneficial things that will happen from their righteousness will happen, and people who, let's say, study that Hasidus or whatever, or learn their farm, will gain from that, and the world will gain from it, and it's gained in a way that it's done in, to perfection, that even Lutzado, as great as he was, Hashem can do it better than him. So now if you look at that, there's so and that explains why certain places when the when the Rebbe dies, the Hasidus even does better. How could he do better? The answer is that the Rebbe is in a more powerful place than he is there. Now, if you really understand this, you could see the fairness of it. And that's what Rav Kook is trying to explain. Yeah. I'm gonna take this down to a very Please a little bit louder. I'm gonna take this down to a very simplistic point because I'm literally challenging. <laughs> um, we're praying for people in Israel amongst ourselves to survive. We're praying for the hostages to be released. We're praying for people to not to suffer, but there is a positive outcome if those things happen. It, Correct. I'm sensing a conflict in my mind. Why is it a conflict? In other words, you're saying if it's good for them to die, why should we pray for them to live? Is that what you're asking? Like yeah. It. Because we're human beings. And 
Hashem wants to know, are we human beings? Mm. Yeah. And as a human being, Hashem wants us to, to have people live. Yeah. Right? Rapo yirape. The doctors, are, and part of healing is praying. So our job is to keep the Jews alive. That's our job. It's God's job to take them away. So we pray to God and say, God, keep them alive. We're doing our job. We're, as a quote, Jewish humanitarians. Our job is this person is suffering, have them live. Not, not everything. But God, if we, you decide differently, okay, we trust you. But our, our <coughs> Rezan de Etra is v'chaibahem, to live by them. God, you wrote your Torah, we should live by them. We're doing what we're supposed to do. Remember, Simcha is doing the thing you're supposed to be doing. My thing is supposed to save this person's life. If Hashem, you decide not to, I bow to your understanding. But now I can take comfort in knowing that that person dies al-Kiddush Hashem. He now goes to Gan Eden. And if he was a righteous person, then all of his future uh, mitzvahs will be counted as if they are Thank done. You, Rabbi. That sort of okay, but it's it's clearly we don't say, well, what's the difference if they die? It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, because God says you have to be human and you have to save a Jew. And I want to see how human you are. I want to see how much it cares for you. And remember, every feeling you give goes somewhere, even doesn't hit the destination you have in mind, it still goes in the place it should be at. So there's a tremendous, when we see a war going on, at the one hand, we should understand <coughs> evil is being eradicated, and any good that's eradicated is just being upgraded to be part of this greater thing. And let's just do one more. So we're not going to finish this first. Let's do one more. And afterwards, and when the war ends, the world renews in a new spirit. And the feet of Mashiach are more revealed. That's when the war is over. Now, let's take a look at some commentary. At the end of the Great War, World War I, ideas and thoughts about an improved world emerged in the world. And this is indeed what happened after the First World War. For example, they established the League of Nations under the advice, according to the advice of President Wilson, who issued the 14 points of a new world. Of course, in World War II, it didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> And these thoughts about a better world also sprouted towards the end of World War II, the Yalta Conference, the establishments of the United Nations. Now that is, is from the human perspective. They said, you know, we got to do something better about this. And although both the League of Nations and the UN ultimately failed in their missions, good things came out of the two wars, the Dalford Declaration and the establishment of the State of Israel. Now this is very... Zionistic, religious Zionistic way of looking at it. I'm sorry? Yes, this is beyond, this is not Rav Kutz being, it's his students, his students, his son's students, etc. Who, who went, but this makes a lot of sense. Evil was destroyed. Now, before World War I, no way would there even be any suggestion of a Jewish state. Not even on the table. It's impossible. Three things would have to happen. So guess what? World War One, three things happened, and he even got a Balfour Declaration, which at least is a sign. And many people thought this was a very good sign, 
And I don't think anyone denied it. The only problem is, what would the Jews do with that? That is the danger. After World War II, it's clear without a World War II, there would not have been a state of Israel, at least from uh, the normal flow of politics, social, political things. It was, they felt sorry for the Jews. Rabbi, six right? million Jews for the state of Israel, and we want Mashiach? For the state of Israel, for Israel, you got. We're still not. How much? How much are we gonna have to pay to get the Mashiach? It sounds. Oh. Okay, that's an interesting question. I mean, all that potential of six million Jews, although who knows how many geniuses and sodics and, and things were there. We'll okay, never but look what you got. Look, look. For, remember, remember. Yes, you're forgetting quickly. What happened to the righteous ones? Where did they go? Are they in a good place? Yes, they are. And now, and many of them died young, right? Absolutely. So what does that, think about this for a minute. What does that mean? A, a little baby who's murdered. Let's understand, according to Rav Cook, what's happening. A little baby in a from home. That means that baby was going to live 70 years doing Torah and mitzvahs. Right? How many millions of religious babies? I don't know how many were all from of the 2 million babies. They all weren't from. But how many were from? A lot. All of them, Hashem just puts it into the overall Jewish tank. 70 years times tens of thousands of children are bringing good into the world. And they didn't have to do anything for it. Okay? So when you look at it from that perspective, the children gained a lot. Now, we're not denying there was pain and suffering and all those things that were going on. But to be able to have a world that would never, remember, the whole pride of the world, the whole pride of Christendom was that there is no God anymore. The God has left the Jews, and the biggest proof is they're not on their land. Jordan Stenhouse, that was 1,900 years, a rock. That was proof positive that the Christians were the, cho the new Israel. And now, how could it be? that there would be a state of Israel with Jews in it. Do you understand how insulting that is to the Christian world? <laughs> you know, and that took six million. <clears throat> and that took merits and merits and merits. Now, it can obviously come in other ways, but we didn't choose to have it come in that way. But so that's what happened with World War II. Okay, now further, we'll have to analyze more. Okay, all right, I think we can... Uh, Stop it over here. We didn't yeah. quite finish, but I oh, think yeah. we, we've gained a lot more perspective, oh, yeah. which should be very helpful. Amir Sashem, uh, we will.